Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 61, and the English are back in Cape Town. This was a momentous moment for Southern Africa. Gone was the VOC and its chaos, and in its place, a world superpower had arrived, which was going to exploit the region in various ways over the next century. But not at first. There is a myth bandied about in South Africa that London always wanted to colonize the region. At first, there were more reasons to avoid South Africa than run it. However, as time went by, the British became more entrenched in the region as its competitors in Europe began to exploit the continent. This led, much later in the 19th century, to what became known as the Scramble for Africa. In January 1807, David Baird, who'd seized the Cape, made the great mistake of sending an expedition under Brigadier General Beresford and Commodore Sir Home Popham against Buenos Aires without the approval of the authorities in England. As soon as this became known, Baird was court-martialed and hustled back to Britain, handing over the reins of power in South Africa to Irish peer Dupree Alexander, 2nd Earl of Caledon. Like Jacob Kyler, who we're going to hear more about shortly, he was young, only 29, and a governor, Nochal. Unlike Kyler, though, he was bright, active, and imaginative. Dupree Alexander had a strong sense of his prerogatives and responsibilities and was going to be hard-pressed to solve the interminable problem of the Eastern Cape, the Zurfeld, and the wild northern frontiers. No one had managed before him, so what hope did he really have? While the governors were playing 19th century musical chairs in the Eastern Cape at Jutenhaeg, the new Landrost, Jacob Kyler, was beginning to impose himself. As an embittered loyalist who had been forced to flee his homeland of America during the Revolution, he was going to seek conflict immediately with the missionaries at Bethelsdorp. We ended last episode with the fact that this little place was crucial in the annals of the struggle later against apartheid. And the role of missionaries is also crucial, as was the rule of church leaders like Bayez Nordia in the 20th century. Bethelsdorp was a tired, bleak and impoverished place in 1807. London Missionary Society member and visitor John Campbell said of it that The ground on which it stands is barren in the extreme, so that nothing green is to be seen near the houses. This also adds to the gloominess of the village. British visitor Mrs. Fairburn was far more direct, albeit she wrote later in the 1830s that The place looks miserable. The people look miserable. An air of desolation reigns around. Remember, it lay in that intermediate zone between winter and summer rainfall. The area is dry to this day. Jacob Kyler arrived in Utenhaeg further north up Algoa Bay from where Bethelsdorp was located and took up a double appointment. Not only was he Landrost of Utenhaeg, he was also the commander of Fort Frederick, the principal military outpost on the frontier. This was built on a small hill overlooking the bay and can be seen today at its location at Belmont Terrace overlooking the Kabecha, formerly Port Elizabeth, CBD, and the Barkins River. Opposing him at the mission station was Johann van der Kemp and James Reed. While van der Kemp had a lengthy military career behind him and was no mental nor physical pushover, Kyler decided to dislike him from the get-go. At the root of the conflict was the need for farm labour. The problem was intensified by the prohibition of the slave trade in 1807. 
Just before that, the colonists in the Cape managed to squeeze in one more major injection of slave labour, with 500 slaves arriving soon after the Batavians left. That didn't mean blacks never entered the Cape by ship again. Thereafter, all ships with slaves on board belonging either to British subjects or the subjects of any country at war with Great Britain and captured in the southern seas were brought straight to Table Bay. The slaves on board were then freed, but with a proviso. They were to be apprenticed on the farms of Stellenbosch and Swellendam for five years. Then they were set free properly and could go where they liked. The wheat and wine farmers were glad to use these freed slaves as serfs, and the consequence of this was the mixture of more people around the Cape. However, the new abolitionist movement meant no more slaves could be sold in the Cape. Dependence on the Khoikhoi then grew greater than ever as the slave ships stopped coming to Cape Town. This meant there was going to be a crisis of communication between the LMS and Kyla, pivoting particularly over the accusation from the colonists that the Khoikhoi had deserted their farms for Bethelsdorp, which many, of course, had done. It's gritty stuff, dear listeners. Some of the challenges were experienced by the American Landros directly. Kyler wanted six men to help him build his new offices in Newtonhag, so he naturally approached the missionaries for labour, but van de Kemp refused to release the six. The last thing the missionaries wanted was to be seen as labour brokers, particularly because labouring for Kyler was seen as a kind of slavery. The Khoikhoi, said van de Kemp, were the same as free whites and could not be forced to work. Of course, he was way before his time, saying that the Khoikhoi were adults and could make their own decisions about who they laboured for and when. At the same time, Van der Kemp was trying to reinforce his own independence. Kyla and Van der Kemp began exchanging passionate letters. These days, we would call both increasingly tone-deaf and a kind of mad Twitter exchange, where the public was very involved on both sides. Van der Kemp said Kyla was perpetuating oppression and refused to allow the Khoikhoi to join the commandos, which were still going out periodically. He accused Kyla of condoning servitude of the Khoikhoi by the Boers and tolerating what he called Trek Boer cruelty. Kyla retaliated by advocating that Van der Kemp be physically removed from the frontier, saying that the missionary was causing the tranquility of the region to be disturbed because so lawless and turbulent a character who has so much influence with the savage nations, is suffered to act as he pleases. Watching all of this, as usual, were the Amakosa of the Zutfeld. When Janssens had met Nika on June 1803 at the end of the Third Cape Frontier War, the Fish River was reconfirmed as the eastern boundary of the Cape. Remember, too, that Janssens had to agree with Amakosa remaining to the east of the Fish, despite this, because Ingrika could not control his uncle, Enchlambe, and Enchlambe regarded the Zurfeld as his home. And you know that Enchlambe, his brother Mnyaluza of the Amararabi, and Kungwa of the Makonukwebi had no intention of quitting the territory and had picked up a few spare cattle as the Boers had fled during the recent war. Enchlambe was nervous about both Ingrika's aims and those of the British. He was in an invidious position. Nick, as we also know, had been suffering from bouts of depression and megalomania, and it wasn't long before that was going to lead to more conflict. Some say it was because of what happened to the Koi Koi next. Others say correlation is not causation. So, what happened? 
Well, on November 1st, 1808, Caledon offered a compromise in dealing with the issue of labour and the Khoikhoi. He offered the Khoikhoi the full protection of the law and at the same time tried to satisfy the demand for labour. From that date onwards, Khoikhoi employed by farmers had to be given written contracts that stipulated their wages. These days, doing anything else is illegal under the Labour Relations Act. But of course, that was 218 years ago. Caledon's law, which became a kind of magna carta for the Khoikhoi, stipulated further that the contract had to be for a year and farm workers could not be forced to stay on longer because of debt or because of any other subterfuge. Provision was also made for appeal against employers who tried to circumvent this law or those who were still beating their workers. For independent observers, this was a humane law. Caledon was putting into effect the basic tenets of human rights, which Landros Meinier of Graf Reinet had tried ten years before and the Batavians had envisaged. As with all laws, however, there was a catch. The Khoikhoi, in turn, had to stop wandering around like their ancestors and settle down. Their nomadic lifestyle, already shattered by the arrival of colonialism, was now prescribed. The vagrancy of the Khoikhoi had been one of the main complaints laid against them by the Boers since the decay of their traditional peninsular societies we've heard so much about. It went further. Every Khoikhoi had to have a fixed abode which was officially registered. A Khoikhoi who was hired by a farmer could not leave the farm without a pass. You know where this went in South African history. Like Soviet Russia, the authorities tried to control the movement of people by issuing passbooks or papers. This meant each individual could be kept under scrutiny, and what worked in the Cape circa 1808 was going to work in the Soviet Union circa 1968, and works digitally in China 2021. The Uyghurs, gentle listener, are being managed just like the blacks in apartheid South Africa, but hush, we're not allowed to say that because Beijing says this view is racist. Well, we humans are not very hard to understand, despite our interwebs, our space flights, and our TikTok influences. We are related to the great apes, after all, and just got lucky with our opposing thumbs and our walking upright postures. So using a pass law is a pretty old human idea when one group of people want to oppress another. Any colonist, back in 1808, could stop a Khoikhoi and demand to see his pass. If arrested as a vagrant, the Khoikhoi could be automatically contracted in inverted commas, to a farmer. And so Caledon's pass law proclamation was a legislative precedent for one of the most troubled concepts to lodge itself in South Africa's outlook on the control of race. The idea of passes was not new, but the British governor thought it should be formally written into law. Before then, Khoikhoi and slaves had to carry papers of various sorts when out cutting wood or moving about on the landscape. Now it was formally written down as a law, and was going to be enforced as such. Caledon had given the Khoikhoi legal protection against harsh treatment, but he simultaneously removed the last vestiges of their communal independence in a land that they had roamed for thousands of years. With a slave trade halted, and whites refusing to do hard labour, the burden of maintaining the economy fell on the Khoikhoi workers and the farmers who were now wedded in a unique master-servant relationship. Farm labour was the sole means of subsistence for the majority of the Khoikhoi. As historian Noel Mostat observes, quoting a missionary, 
The cruel apparatus inseparable from compulsory labour is but ill-concealed. About 800 khoikhoi now lived at Bethelstorp and Kyla passed more laws and edicts. The khoikhoi were not permitted to hunt or cut timber. They could only travel as far as a horse could canter in three hours from the mission in any direction. Those who disobeyed would be flogged. Of course, three hours eastwards would put them in the middle of the ocean. All of this led to the place being thought of as a kind of Khoikhoistan, a reserve. The leader of the Khoikhoi rebel bands, Klaus Sturman, had actually demanded a grant of land as part of the price of laying down arms at the end of the Third Frontier War. Janssens, the Batavian governor at the time, had responded and given Sturman a tract of land along the Khamtuas River, close to Algoa Bay. Several Khoikhoi chiefdoms promptly settled there, but Sturman died in a hunting accident before he could properly enjoy the fruits of his new land. His brother, though, David Sturman, became the captain or chieftain of the rebels after that, and this was the last Khoikhoi freehold within the Cape Colony. By 1809, even that would change after David Sturman was confronted by Kyla, who said the Khamtus settlement had been opposed by a Zurfeld Amatosa. And shortly afterwards, Kyla got his excuse to get rid of Sturman. A group of Boers arrived at the settlement searching for two labourers who'd run away after the farmers apparently forced the two to remain at their farms even after their contracts expired. When the commander rode into Khamtuas, Sturman lined his people up and threatened to defend them by gun if necessary. David Sturman was respected as a fighter. The Boers knew of his determination and ruthless temper They'd found it during the war of 1799-1803, so they retreated. Back at Utenhaig, Kyla had a fit when he heard about Sturman's actions, but then he had a plan, and it involved treachery. So many of these incidents took place, but we gloss over them in history, and yet they send a message far and wide, far further than the Khamtus River. Take note, people, this is how the British honour and agreement seem to be the message. And this is what happened. Kyla persuaded a Boer friend of Stierman, who had no idea what was going to happen next, and who Stierman trusted to summon the Khoi Khoi captain to his house. Stierman duly arrived and was welcomed, in Kyla's words, with every demonstration of cordiality. But this was merely to relax the Khoi Khoi leader. On his signal, the door was shut and Landros Kyla and a crowd of Boers rushed in from an antechamber, Sturman was placed in chains. This is how the word of the whites was kept, people said afterwards. This is what the blacks learned would be the way. Never trust the English. They lie, became the rallying call. They pretend to be honourable, but are dishonourable at the first opportunity. Nika took note. Those of Sturman's people who failed to escape to the Zurfeld were shared out amongst the colonists as servants. Sturman was taken in chains to Cape Town. There he was accused of planning attacks on the colonists and sent to Robben Island to work in irons for the rest of his life. The story has an interesting end, because Stierman was tougher than most. He escaped from Robben Island, was recaptured and then sent to Botany Bay in New South Wales, Australia. He apparently lived a long life there, eventually dying in 1830. So somewhere in Australia today are relatives of David Sturman, possibly playing footy, and who knows. Maybe two generations later they came to South Africa with the British to fight the Boers, and 200 years later 
Maybe they played against the South Africans as cricketers and perhaps rugby players. Stranger things have happened, you know. Back in sunny Zürfeld circa 1808, Kyla seized the Humptuous lands, and thus it fell to an American loyalist from Albany in New York State to decide the fate of the last independent Khoikhoi territory in South Africa and the fate of the last Khoikhoi chief who tried to fight for his rights until much later in the 20th century. The British treatment of David Sturman did not go unnoticed. As I said, the Amakosa in particular were observing matches with a great deal of interest. The missionaries, of course, were horrified by the lies and the treatment dished out by the upstart American who thought he was British. They had been writing many letters to their administration back in London describing the cruel treatment of the Khoi and, of course, these were the days of the abolitionists. They were active, vocal and powerful. The humanitarian societies were newly excited and fervent and committed themselves with unstinting zeal and they said South Africa needed attention. This was 150 years before the anti-apartheid movement, but you can see how long this issue has festered in the world's consciousness. No doubt about it. The impact of these writers then offered a harsh and angry portrait of the frontier boers. The polemic was settled that long ago. It was then that James Reed wrote about how Kyla and the others had treated them in Bethelsdorp, and he found a responsive audience that had money. The British government then came under pressure from the middle-class lobby, and Westminster relayed the contents of Reed's letter back to Caledon in Cape Town, who then sent a message to Kyla to contact the missionaries. When the Trek Boers found out about the letter, their hatred for the liberal missionaries went up another five notches. Kyla was now investigating reports of their actions against the Khoikhoi, but most on both sides thought it was more words that nothing would come of the complaints. You see, the Cape needed the meat. The VOC and the Batavians had overlooked violence, so everyone was sure the British would too. And they were right, at least in the medium term, but not in the short term. First, there was the circuit court, which we'll deal with in upcoming episodes. The result would leave the missionaries embarrassingly exposed because they had failed to check most of their stories they'd been told by the Khoikhoi. As you'll hear, the missionaries had made outrageous claims of more than a hundred Khoikhoi murdered by the farmers, but none of these could be substantiated. But the very fact that an independent court had heard evidence and the Boers were placed in the dock to face blunt questions about their murdering of workers and beating of the Khoikhoi shook the colonists. They were found guilty of deducting wages illegally, kidnapping children to force Khoikhoi parents to work, and of stealing Khoikhoi livestock. The missionaries were then also slapped down for a lack of impartiality by the judges. Many of the reports of murder stretched back decades and were therefore impossible to verify. The bodies long consumed by the wild animals of the felt, the bones redistributed by the rain and the rat. From now on, British justice would be referred to as the Black Circuit Court by the Boers. And they saw this as an outrageous assault on their independence and integrity. Don't forget we're still basking in the heat of 1807 and 1808, and across the country, the Amazulu were organizing. And that's where we'll head in the next episode, to join Dingazwayo and Shaka as they fought their way through Zululand to create one of history's most memorable empires. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. 
If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, tootsies. Thank you.